Hi, I'm Shane Scott, Senior Editor of Power and Motor Yacht, and welcome to the Power and Motor Yacht Podcast. In today's episode, I sit down with Whit Jones, a retired Army Apache pilot who serves as the Operations Director for Wounded Nature Working Veterans. Tell me about Wounded Nature. I don't know a lot about it. There was a press release that was sent to me from your communications guy, and it sounds like you guys are doing some good work on coastal cleaning, but I suppose you can maybe give me an overview of, of who you guys are and, and what you're doing. Sure, absolutely. First, I'd ask you if you you know to get a de- deeper background would be to check out our our webpage. We've got we document all our past accomplishments, and and that includes cleanups and uh, crab trap removals, boat removals, oyster bed lays, things like that. So we've got a lot of history. Uh, we've been around uh, eleven years. I've been with the organization for about three and a half. Uh, but Wounded Nature Working Veterans is the, is the title. Uh, it is a environmental five hundred one c three nationally chartered. We are based in Charleston, South Carolina, and most of our work has been in South Carolina and the East Coast because of just geographically where we're located. The focus of the mission, the mission of, of Wounded Nature is to clean and rehabilitate the critical coastal areas that others really can't access. And we clean and we focus on uh, marine debris that's toxic for the environment. So we're talking treated lumber, tires, uh, foam, styrofoam, those kinds of things that are going to break down and get into the marine pop, marine life, so shellfish. And we do that work in the tidal marshes and on the bare islands. We tend to, we don't go to the beaches and pick up straws and cigarette butts and beer bottles, you know, at the tourist areas. There's plenty of people out there to do that on Saturday mornings. Um, so we, we want to go where the wildlife wants to be uh, and, and, remove the, the the marine debris that's toxic for that environment. And what we found is that when we do that work, then the marine life re-inhabits the area. So um, one example up in New York, uh, a, a big cleanup was done. And the following year, a migratory shore, shorebird, I can't remember the bird species off the top of my head, but, but re-inhabited this island that was on a kind of a federal park area. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they... Uh, kind of had to shut down some summer concert series, you know, because these birds came back into, you know, where they, you know, in the, in the tidal marshes where they wanted to, you know, needed to be. So, so we know the work works. We, we you know, what we do helps. About four or five years ago, uh, we did a notice that at least here on the East Coast, you may not be familiar with, but how how commercial crabbing works. Uh, and in the Carolinas, we're after the really tasty blue crab. Um, but they put out these big metal baskets. They're kind of chicken wire made and they, they put a float on it and mark it. And sometimes they break free the the line breaks or whatever. And, and over many, many decades, these crab traps had broken free. They wash out with the tide and then come back in with the, with the, the beach tide and end up on bare islands. And so we had literally trees on the bare islands that were just almost decorated with crab traps. So, so Wounded Nature helped, uh, started with uh, just us and then our, our Department of Natural Resources joined us in the second year and we ended up removing 2,800 crab traps off the coast of South Carolina. Uh, now you go out on, on these really pristine areas and you don't see crab traps anymore because of the work we've done. And those were killing shorebirds, they were killing uh, sea turtles nesting. Um, and so that, that was a big effort. And then the year after that, we started working on abandoned boat removal. And so just, again, kind of the situation of we saw a problem, 
no one was addressing it. We asked folks that may, could or should be addressing it. Nobody was doing anything. So we started taking action to, to uh, identify, uh, clear, remove, and dispose of abandoned boats. In, in, uh, first in our local area, but we've also gotten boats out in New York. We've gotten boats out in the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, we've helped with boats in Florida. So we currently sit at 131 vessels removed in three years. Um, and for a small nonprofit, that's a, a, a big undertaking. So uh, we, we, we just got off the boat today looking at one of our nearby creeks where we know there are uh, some derelict boats. So, you know, boat that's been there for 10 or so years. We're not no one's sure who the owner is. It doesn't have numbers on it. You know, it's sitting in the water on a mooring ball, just kind of hanging out there. And so we were out there documenting and sharing with our, our local partners to try to figure out, you know, what the step next step is for some of these vessels. So more than just kind of what we are, but that's kind of, you know, where we focus and what we've done, some of our biggest accomplishments. We have, uh, I mentioned 131 vessels removed, um, the, the crab traps at 2,800. Our tally on on just marine debris is sitting at about 49 full dumpsters sent to the landfill over 10 years so our heaviest one was about 13 tons that we it was full of treated lumber that was water soaked in the water a lot of times you have a, a storm comes through that you know breaks up a dock or things like that on the intercoastal waterway or on any waterway and that treated lumber just ends up in the tidal marshes and, and it's really difficult to get out because of its size and weight and it's in the mud and so um, sometimes these dumpsters get really, really heavy uh, when we can get that stuff out and, and put it into a dumpster. Can I ask you what the, the process is, is like for, so when you're taking out these, you know, these giant types of pollution, like what's, what's your process in getting things out? So, you know, a, a few, a, a problem we're are kind of still trying to solve is how do you get a, a telephone pole which is also used as a dock piling, you know, they cut them down, but it's really a telephone pole size uh, treated piece of wood. How do you get that out of the, out of the marsh? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's a, that's remains a challenge for us, uh, to do that. Fortunately, our most recent success in treated lumber, we had land access to the area because it was on an Island with a waterway next to it. And we were able to get an excavator, a, a mini excavator close enough. And I myself literally tromped through with a long, long, long lead, a line, and and we're, was able to dig underneath these this wood and and we we drug it out that way. So that that's just one sample of how we can do it. If you have land access and a long line, you can pull it out. If you go by water, this stuff doesn't want to float anymore. It's been in the water so long; it's so heavy. Uh, so uh, you know, attaching some type of flotation to it at a lower tide, and then letting the tide do its thing, and, and hopefully lift it out of the mud, and then we can we can pull it out by boat. Sometimes even then, it doesn't want to float. So it, it's uh, it's some, somewhat dangerous. And, and then having a place to take it uh, that's nearby because you can't drag it around the water all day. So um, each large piece like that is very specifically handled. Um, the boats are, you know, each one is different. Every time we do a boat, it's the it's, you know, I, I'm retired out of the Army after 30 years. Uh, and so what I like about this job is it's kind of like a day in the Army. You know, nothing's ever the same. Um, you know, you never kind of know what, what problems are going to get thrown at you. So every boat's a little bit different. If the boat is floating, then it's, it's a much easier problem to solve than you, you know, once the boat's cleared by the proper agencies, then we, we find a place to take it and either lift it out or drag it out, uh, put it on a trailer and take it out. And then it, it, uh, anything that can be salvaged, uh, gets salvaged by others. We don't, we don't do the salvage part. 
Um, some of our partners that contract with us do uh, any toxins are removed and then they are it's it's crushed up and, and sent to a landfill. So for the abandoned vessels, are you guys yourselves going out there and just towing these boats out? Uh, a lot of times we, we're towing vessels or we, we partner with uh, Towboat US or Boat US in their tow operation here in Charleston is a major supporter for us and a great partner. And so when we have something that we can't handle because we, we've got a relatively small shallow boat. Uh, to get into the tidal areas that, that if something bigger than we can handle, we, we, we reach out for help. I thought you brought up a great point about, um, you know, your veteran status and, and kind of having a familiarity with the energy, I suppose, or like the, the, the feel of it. You never know what you're going to expect. And, and um, you feel equipped for that with your previous experience. Is there any skills or, or things specific to, to being a veteran that, that you guys bring to what you're doing that helps you to, to do what you're doing? I, I believe so. So, so the founder, uh, Rudy Socha is, is, a you know, I guess the word is once a Marine, always a Marine. So Rudy was a Marine early in life and we have a great number of veterans involved with us. We probably pull more local veterans into our organization and environmental nonprofit than, than some veterans organizations do to their veteran thing. So we, we have a lot of veterans of all services, but we also have a lot of non-veterans. So, you know, just, uh, folks that are, that want to do, uh, do the work and help out with the environment. So we act, we're kind of a cross pollination of all, all walks of life, all political aspects, um, which, which kind of makes our local volunteer group a little bit unique. Right. So, um, but, but for me as a veteran, it, it does, uh, it gives me, uh, a kind of renewed sense of purpose as I retired out of the army. Uh, I, I was fortunate to find wounded nature before I retired and I was a volunteer, uh, with them. And I did some time on the board while I was still on active duty uh, and it was a great transition for me to 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 come on full time as a, as the director for operations. So, um, but it does, you know, kind of that whole, you know, be prepared for a little bit of anything. Uh, kind of that Boy Scout mentality of having, you know, do you have the right stuff with you? You know, right? Th- those that kind of lifelong training of, of of being in the military and having my 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 bag packed just the right way. It, it really means we got to have some success on the water. We've had numerous times where we go to help someone else uh, in a, a boat removal and we show up and we've got a couple of bags of tools and they're like, why do you have your tools? This is, you know, we just want you to watch or advise or, you know, assist. And 10 times out of 10, 10 times out of 10, we dig into our tool bag to, to, to pull out what we know is going to be needed because we just have the experience to do it. So, um, so that's helped. And then being able to get along with others, work, you know, you know, whether it's an official agency on the water, uh, a, a recreational boater, a commercial fisherman, like just that experience of, of traveling the world and interacting with tens of thousands of whatever, you know, people I have over 30 years, uh, you know, just I think that is, it goes a long way, too, is I'm able to to get along well with others and, and really just try to convince others that they need to help us do our mission. Could you tell me about maybe what some of the the bigger challenges you've had? for uh, a coastal project or for a, a derelict uh, boat cleanup project you did was maybe a specific one what, how, what you guys had to do to get it out or probably the most difficult boat we re- removed we i got two that, that within the last year that were especially challenging uh one this was a 30 something foot sailboat uh that had been towed into a marina by the coast guard because there was a a medical emergency board, the operator went to some kind of medical care home. And then uh, the vessel promptly sank at the dock in the, in a marina. And so with the tidal 
nature of Charleston waters, you know, every six point something hours, we get a tide, a tide change. Uh, that boat had worked its way underneath the dock. And so we had a 30 plus foot sailboat uh, underneath kind of hanging up on a dock in a marina that didn't want to come up. And that boat took five days of salvage diving. Uh, and we ended up finally having to bring in a dredge crane operation to and their dive crew. And it still took 12 hours of work. Uh, that boat was probably a hundred thousand dollar job. 110,000, I think is what the Marina's insurance paid. Um, so boats like that, because of the t- nature of the tidal waters and, and the currents uh, can be especially challenging. And then another boat very nearby sank in shallow waters and it also just didn't want to come up. It, it was completely full of mud and sand. So we get a, we have a this pluff mud here in, in South Carolina. It's really soft and it gets into everything. And so that boat was so full of mud, uh, even as we, and we have all the techniques to, as you raise it above the water, you blast it with a water jet to, to loosen up the mud and you got another pump to suck it out. And uh, it still didn't want to come out. So we ended up, got it above water enough safely after about day four to tow it partially submerged up to the haul out spot. So a um, couple of, you know, really just sometimes this, the sunken vessel, that's the, the biggest challenge, right? As far as the operational aspect of it, but the challenge, be, they are challenging because of resources. So I, I mentioned the cost of the, the sailboat at the marina. Uh, this is a very expensive endeavor. And so our number one challenge is resources, right? Is funding uh, to, to do the work we do. So uh, we are, you know, we know we're a nonprofit. We've got some corporate donors. Uh, that, that contribute small pieces to our, our funding pie um, on a steady basis, but none of them in and of themselves are earth-shatteringly large. And then we have very, very small private donors, um, you know, the individual that, that wants to give back. Uh, and and what, what we continue to look for is, is that continual large funding stream so that we can expand our operations. There should be a Witt Jones in Florida. There should be a Witt Jones in Georgia. There should be a Witt Jones in Texas and Louisiana and so on and so forth. So every coastal state, you know, needs this type of work. Uh, but, in, you know, we, we can't get big enough, fast enough to, to do the work. So that's our that's our number one challenge is, is, is resourcing and funding. So we continue to be asked about, well, why don't you ask for grant money? And, do you, you know, have you have you talked to NOAA Marine Debris? And, you know, we have, you know, we've been doing this for 11 years and, um, you know, a lot of the good ideas that people suggest to us have already been tried. And so a lot of times in this space, in this environmental space, uh, a lot of the funding that might be available is, is really for outreach and education uh, instead of remedial action, right? So a grant to a municipality to do a K through 12 program to educate kids about, you know, marine debris and, and the problems it had, you know, that there's money for that, but there's not money to get the stuff out. So uh, that's, how, that's how we continue to be challenged. So, I mean, you mentioned diving, you mentioned dredging. Are these like common things that you guys are having to do to get the boats out? It, it is the boats floating uh, or if it's, you know, maybe a wash or drift in the marsh or on the bank, then divers probably not needed unless we know it's got a leak. Uh, it's always smart if you think the vessel might have a, a water intrusion to do an inspection dive if you can, uh, if you're going to tow it on the water. The, uh, and we've got some, you know, some tips and techniques of over the years of, you know, to plug 
poles with like toilet bowl wax rings, hmm. um, make great ways to stop the water, uh, flex seal, uh, great foam, you know, those kinds of things, even water bottles sometimes, you know, will plug the hole. Yeah, but it is pretty common. It's, if the boat is if the boat is underwater, you're going to need a diver. There's no other way to, to get it raised. So we don't, Rudy and I are not, Rudy's dive certified, but we don't do our own diving. So um, we, 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 you know, we have folks we work with or, or that, that, that go on contract basis to, uh, to do the dive work. So, um, but uh, I'm about to get certified, but I don't expect to use my certification in my day-to-day work. Mm. So, okay. We'll see though, huh? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, throw you out there. Okay. So how about as far as, uh, as far as debris go, has there ever been like any, any project that really stands out as the most challenging? Well, our, our biggest every year is our, we do a big spring event, uh, usually in March before the major boating season kicks off. And we partner with our local Boeing, uh, plant and their, their environmental outreach arm. Um, Robert Bosch corporation is another local supporter. Uh, and then we bring a bunch of just volunteers out and, and on this particular day, it's a, usually a, a second or third Saturday in March, we will do a, tidal marsh cleanup and simultaneously a oyster bed lay uh in the harbor and we just call it the charleston harbor cleanup and we hit a thousand bags in one day oyster bags laid on a new reef in the harbor this year last year we were close we hit 950 and and they we ended up we had we had some boat reliability issues for some of our supporters and so we weren't able to get the last 50 bags out so we hit a thousand bags uh and we're talking a human chain of, you know, passing oyster bags from trailer down the ramp to a boat, boat shuttles it out to an island. We get enough oyster bag out there and then we shuttle humans out there to offload them and do the same thing and lay them uh, as our Department of Natural Resources uh, scientists are out there, you know, sighting them in and making sure they're laid just so. And again, simultaneously, we're, we have another probably 50 to 75 volunteers doing a, a, a marsh cleanup and we usually pull uh, anywhere from four to eight, eight tons of debris out at the same time. So that's kind of our biggest annual deal. Um, it takes several months of planning. We do pay uh, some local charter captains to help with our moving people back and forth on on their their boats and stuff like that to make it easier. But uh, that's that's kind of our biggest annual deal. And then I, I mentioned the, the the treated lumber that that will remain our our biggest challenge uh, to get you know. It's not the it's not the two by fours and two by sixes that come off of a dock. It's the the dock pilings, the fourteen inch, the twelve inch, the telephone pole size that are that are out there that need to come out. And as you look through our website, it's kind of buried down in some of our media videos. But there, we did a fish tank experiment uh, some years ago, and I'll, I'll I'll just summarize: caught some baby shrimp and some baby fish, put them in a tank with a bubbler for 24 hours. They were living happy in the, in the tank with the bubbler, took a, a wedge of treated wood smaller than a football that we cut from the mar- a piece of wood in the marsh and put it in the tank with a rock on top of it to keep it in there. And there's little timestamps of like what happened instantaneously, everything in the tank got really excited. And then the shrimp start jumping on the glass. They jump out of the tank and within a couple of hours, everything in the tank was dead. So the toxins and that wood had been in that marsh for decades. 
right? It's it, but it still leaches. It's not like oh, the outer coating of your treated lumber it washes away and it's now safe. It leaches that stuff for probably forever. So I cut into a section of dock piling that we pulled out last December. It was too big to load into the dumpster with an excavator. That's how heavy it was. So we had a, a portable chainsaw or electric chainsaw. We, we were cutting it into like four to eight foot sections. And on the outside, it was nasty, covered in mud, slimy. You could tell how old it was. And when you cut into it, Shane, the, there was a four inch band completely around this thing that was dark brown creosote right all the chemicals pressure treated in there and then the the center eight inches of this big log looked like it was fresh cut from the forest that's how i mean the chemicals work to do their job to protect the wood but my point being they will never stop leaching into the environment and so it's a neurotoxin for the for the shrimp and fish now does it kill everything in the marsh not we don't believe really what what it does do it drives them away from that portion of the marsh and so as we see our shrimp stocks declining our our local shrimpers are having a tough year year over year over year and our belief is that it's that our our estuary part of our our ecosystem has too much toxins in it and so it just they avoid the area and they're you know they're trying to find a place to survive and they can't be in that marsh with all those toxins so um, so that's why it's important for us to get it out. And, uh, that will continue to be a, a big challenge for us because of the, the size and the weight, uh, of that, those treated lumber pieces. And they're everywhere. I mean, the, the, the weird thing about this job, I, and I try to tell people, you know, I ask, Hey, have you been on a boat, you know, in Charleston? And they're like, yeah, it's beautiful. I'm like, yeah, you see the herons and the egrets and, you know, the dolphins. And I said, but, and, and, when you're riding in a boat, all you can see is the marsh grass. It's green, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's tall. It's, you know, if you walk through it, it's about waist or, or mid chest high. Some of it, you can't, what you can't see is what's, what's at your feet. If you, you know, it's, it's in the grass, you can't see it. So people don't know there's a problem. You know, you, you, you cruise around here and you, it looks beautiful and they have no idea how much marine debris is up in the marsh. Every tide cycle stuff washes in the marsh. And it, it takes a constant effort to keep it clean. What's like the biggest or the most common uh, debris that you guys find? Like what's the most heavily common uh, pollution? You know, we, of course, plastics are, are everywhere. I mean, water bottles, beer bottles. I mean, we just all the, all the human activity stuff because of where we live, we find a lot of boat cushions and things that, that came off of boats. You know, we find flip flops and shoes and sunglasses and things like that, that are, you know, don't need to be there, but they're not major problems. You know, let's be honest to wildlife, but, uh, you know, we clean all that stuff up, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the, it's the treated lumber, right? We, we drag out more of that stuff every time we go out, whether it's from, you know, a dock, um, you know, a housing project, it blew off a truck, you know, where did it come from? You know, it's, it's hard to say a lot of it. You can tell it's dock dock material, but, but, uh, you know, that, that continues to be the biggest, heaviest piece we deal with. And then uh, tires, last cleanup we did, we pulled eight tires out uh, off of one particular island. But it is in the harbor area, and, you know, we have a lot of tugs and barges and things that go through, and they use tires on the side to protect them. So, you know, I, I can I can guess where they came from, but, you know, they, they need to come out too. So in, in a, a car tire in the sand – 
trying to dig that out, you know, by hand is, is one thing. Then you get a, you know, say a, an 18 wheeler tire, you know, some of these bigger tires, that's, you know, if you do get it dug out, then it's partially full of mud still. That's a, that's a two to three person lift to get it on and off the boat. And, um, but really those are the, the wooden tires are, are pervasive every time we go out and then just, just trash litter. You know, I, I don't like to say litter because it, it, it implies that someone deliberately tossed it, but it, it's, it's the same kind of stuff you would see on, uh, on the side of the highway. We also find weird things like televisions, you know, how did a TV get out there? I have no idea. Right. Did someone toss it on purpose? Did it float? some i i don't know i had it a t uh, you know an old tube tv i have no idea uh we find construction hats from the barges but uh there's one spot we found just the thousands of little incandescent light bulbs you know the kind for your lamps i don't know how that happened it seems like they all floated there from a landfill maybe or i, I have no idea but they're all in this one spot it, it varies it really does but but i think you know everywhere we go we find treated wood everywhere we go What's the current projects or challenges that you guys are looking at right now? Uh, right now, we're we're trying to work on the. So we've done a lot of work in South Carolina on the backlog of of small boats, recreational boats, um, some of the easier ones, and even some of the more difficult ones. As I mentioned, there are about fifty or so remaining in South Carolina that we have gone to the state about and said, "Hey, we we know these vessels are out there." Uh, we estimate it'll cost a couple million dollars to clean them up. There's like a 90-foot research vessel that changed hands a number of times, went from a private to a university back to private. It, it was became defunct, and it got anchored up river and it sank. Uh, there's a couple of commercial shrimping vessels that we know that have sunk. Uh, there's some barges we know that are sunk that need to be raised. So these bigger things that, that wounded nature is not really equipped to handle, we can we can ride shut. Uh, lead on it, right? We can orchestrate it, but we're not equipped to handle it. And our the partners that we deal with are, are not equipped to handle it either. So we'll have to contract it to someone uh, that has the capabilities. Uh, and those are expensive endeavors. So we've actually talked to the state of South Carolina and met with the governor. We're meeting with one of our senators soon in the next couple of weeks to, to talk about funding for cleaning these up. And this is really our our, our goal is to clear the backlog, right? So we can have a fresh start moving forward. So we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of vessels that were abandoned or sinking or sunk. And we've done the lion's share of that work. And we, we need a little help from the state or corporate America or somebody to, to get the money to do the rest of the work. Uh, and so we want to clear this backlog, clean up all the waterways that we have everything we know about, and then we'll be dealing with future problems as they come about. They're much easier and cheaper to deal with uh, proactively, which is why I was out today. We were out documenting a, a local uh, waterway near near where we live of vessels that are out that are not registered. There's no data on them. There's no name. And so we go take pictures. I get coordinates. I send them to our Department of Natural Resources so they can track them and log them. And then we start piecing the puzzle together about who owns it and, and let our law enforcement team do what they do best, which is, you know, make sure the owner knows if they can find the owner that, that they're responsible for it. And so that that's what we see. You know, that's what we're working on moving forward is, is getting after these larger vessels. We're also expanding a little bit. So in the fall of 21, we we spent a good bit of time working in the Myrtle Beach area, so north of where we live, uh, just a couple of counties over. 
but we cleaned up the two counties all the way up to the North Carolina line uh, with our Department of Natural Resources. And a, we had an amazing private company that does shallow water dredging that lives and grew up and works on the waterways there and said, okay, I'll help. And by help, I mean, he donated everything, crew, barge, tug, fuel, you know, they cooked breakfast for us. I mean, they, for, from countless days, we got 23 vessels out with their help. Um, and he, he didn't ask for a penny. So, um, as a nonprofit, of course, we can do a, a, a tax donation letter for them and they use those, um, with their accountants, right. At tax season. But, um, you know, so companies like that make a huge difference in, in cleaning up their local, local areas. Um, but as, as we did there in, in Myrtle beach, we're going to now expand the same approach down to Beaufort Hilton head down to the South towards Georgia. I'm heading Thursday to meet with our department of natural resources lead in, in, in those counties. So, and so, yeah, we're, we're just really trying to, you know, get after the, the, the big ticket items here in the state. And then, you know, ideally we, we, we want to expand. So when I, when I came on board two years ago, pre-COVID, it was, you know, hey, Whit, you're going to come on, take over South Carolina, and the family was going to move to Florida and expand in there and operations in there. One of our major corporate sponsors no longer was able to support us because they're, they much relied on, you know, pre-COVID activities. You know, we, we were unable to expand into, into other parts. So that, those are what we're looking to do moving forward. Okay, cool. So just to kind of backtrack a little bit, it sounds like you guys are helping to play detective. Are you, you're helping the, the police to find these people who have, who have abandoned their vessels? Sometimes we do. It's uh, sometimes we do, or, or we, we turn things over, we find things and we're like, Hey, who, who owns, you know, who owns this or, or, you know, cause law enforcement can't be everywhere. And there's, you know, we have a very expansive waterways. And so, you know, we'll turn what we have, what we find over to uh, via email or text to our law enforcement folks and uh, they can document it and put it on the register and, and start to do the thing they do, which is um, typically here in South Carolina, it's about a 45 to 90 day process for a vessel. Uh, if no owner is known, you know, and, and they'll, they'll put a placard on it that says we, this, this vessel appears to be abandoned. You've got 45 days to contact, you know, this phone number. Uh, if no contact happens, which is pretty normal, then they'll do registered letters to the last known address. If they can find an address, they got to post it in a newspaper and things like that. And after a second period of time, then it can be declared officially abandoned by the state. Um, then the problem becomes, okay, it's, it's declared abandoned. It's, it's cleared for removal. Now what, and who's going to pay for it? And that's sometimes that's where we step in if we have the resources, but it really, everyone thinks it should be an owner's problem or the insurance company's problem. But Sometimes you really can't pin down who owned it. We found vessels with no registration numbers, no name, um, whole ID numbers have been removed uh, from the vessel and older vessels usually only had one whole ID number. It was on the back right corner. Uh, newer ones, they haven't hit manufacturers, hide them in different places. Um, but, but trying to pin down who was last known owner uh, is not always easy. There's, there's very common we see uh, a boat and we track down last known owner and that last known owner says, I sold that boat five years ago to someone else. And that person never registered it, never transferred title. And when you really do back and do some digging, they sold it for a dollar. So they basically gave it to them to get their hands free of it. Uh, so who do you, you know, what do you do then? And that, that new owner might be destitute or not have the resources to do anything about it might be in jail. So sometimes there, there's no money to get these vessels out when people say you should, the owner should pay for it. Well, sometimes the owners, 
<laughs> there is no owner anymore. So, but yeah, we, we do a lot of detective work. Right. Right. So when you, when you find out information, that's when you, you turn the information that you find over to the, the police and they try to contact. Yeah. I mean, so for us, it's department of natural resources, law enforcement, you know, our, our game wardens that are on the water and uh, in each coastal County here, there's one that's kind of designated as, as our point of contact. So the region captain is uh, a, a supporter and a friend. And so, uh, and, and works locally. So, you know, we, we know all the local officers and, and, you know, I, I can text them anytime and say, Hey, what do you, what do you know about this boat? Um, we're we're kind of trusted, but not trusted agents, but non-law enforcement on the, on the water with them. We, we turn it over and, and yeah, they'll, they'll figure out what either clear or not clear. They'll do some, their own research and, and find out what's going on with it. But none of this moves fast typically when you're trying to piece together a history of a vessel. So yeah, just to backtrack to one more thing, uh, just curious about it. You, you mentioned how when it comes to the, the logs, like they're, you know, they're big, you have to, you have to kind of get a line under them sometimes. Are you pulling these things with your boats by the line? Are you having to haul them up onto the, onto the boat itself? Like what's the technique you guys use? So if it's uh, the larger, larger pieces have to be towed just like you were going to tow a vessel. So we have a, a, a boat that's got a tow line and you, you drag it out through the mud to the, to the water and hope it floats. Uh, or, or if you got airbags or something along to, to keep it uh, uh, from, from sinking, uh, that, 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 those things are way too big. You got to get them to your closest ramp or haul out spot uh, that you can safely to, to remove. And then the smaller things that are, that we can either break or cut up, you know, we carry sawzalls everywhere we go. And so, um, you know, if, if there's something big, we need to cut it in smaller chunks. Then we put that on the, on our boat and then haul it out that way. So we, we just got a, um, a new to us, a boat back in February that was a, a former customs and border patrol aluminum skiff, right? So it got a little T tops in our console, uh, heavy gauge aluminum, and uh, bought it at a surplus place in Florida. It had some modifications done to it, and then uh, you know it's added push knees. It's got an engine guard, a tow stanchion uh, for for doing the work we do, and then contacted Yamaha because. The, the boat had no engine, no rigging, anything like that. And so we contacted Yamaha. Uh, and in about five weeks, we had a brand new VF-115 on it with all the new rigging and everything. So Yamaha is uh, a great supporter of Wounded Nature as well. So um, second motor they've given us in, in 11 years to uh, to do what we do. So uh, that little boat is very powerful. It's super low draft. I mean, I'm talking like 12 inches. And so, uh, you know, it, it gets in really probably more like eight inches. It gets in really skinny water. Um, I haven't pushed it yet to see just how skinny I can go, but, uh, that, that's our new, new workhorse and, um, you know, towing, you know, we towed a few boats with it, but, uh, probably haven't really put it to its paces yet to see just how much it can do. Another technical question regarding the, you said a lot of the boats that, that you find are also sunk. Is there a way, is there a way specifically that you're detecting these? I mean, are you waiting, are you seeing it at low tide or is there a way that you guys are checking to find these boats underwater? Uh, most of them are visible at mid to low tide. So, uh, if it's, we do know there's some vessels sunk here in Charleston that are in deeper water. You can't see them at all. You can find them on, on sonar on our side scan. Uh, but we kind of know where they are. Um, those are also in our governor's request for funding, right. To get those vessels raised and, and out of there. But most of the times it's a vessel that's, that's either partially submerged or, you know, we're, we're currently working with uh, the Charleston Metro Chamber of Commerce in a fundraising effort and their annual leadership 
conference, they have teams that are doing projects and one of the pro teams chose us as their project and they're trying to raise 15,000 to get a sailboat out of the harbor. And you can see the mast sticking up at all tide cycles, but it's right near the federal anchorage area. And so it's a hazard of navigation in addition to the environmental hazards. So we're working most, but most of the boats you, you can find at most tide cycles. So it just looks like a sunken boat and for decades, no one was doing anything about them. So we're, that's kind of what we're doing. You mentioned sonar for, for the ones that are sunk pretty low. Do you have your own equipment or is that something that you utilize? For we, we, we don't, uh, if we needed a scan, uh, our department of natural resources has a new, new sonar, our Tobo partners have side scan. Uh, I think our Charleston Harbor police have it as well. So there's agencies here in town that have it. Okay. So you guys are just proactive about checking to see what, what they're picking up on their scans. Yeah. I mean, these, these were, uh, I think, uh, I think our Tobo partners told us about these two vessels that are, that are there in the, in the Anchorage area. So, um, I have no idea how long they've been there. So, mm -hmm. Um, or what, you know, but this is probably, this is where you probably end up with a dredge crane to, to lift them out because they're, they're in 30 feet of water and, um, have been there for years. So, but no, we, we don't really need, uh, sonar. I mean, you know, we, we don't really operate far. We we're near shore, right. We don't go too far off. So we don't have all the bells and whistles like FLIR and, you know, all that weather for AIS and things like that. So we're, we're small coastal outfit so we don't we don't have all the high-tech stuff yeah yeah that's a good question too um what's the oldest boat you guys ever pulled out age of the vessel i'm not sure in fall of 21 late early winter probably november we pulled a boat a sailboat that had been sunk that was sunk in 1989 wow. in one of the major hurricanes and, and our biggest hurricane that hit the the, the south year hurricane hugo uh, of, of 89 and that vessel had been hanging out in the marsh near a dock uh, now that was one that if you weren't there at low tide, you wouldn't know it was there. Yeah. And so we had passed by that area a number of times and just happened to hit it on a, on a particular day where the tide was dry and we saw it. Uh, and a couple of weeks later, I found the property owners nearby and got the story and it's, it was there since 89. So we actually got two boats out last year that were there from 89. So um, a vessel age, that's tough. I mean, we, we deal with a lot of boats that are, that are 50 plus years old. Um, and most of the sailboats, most of our customers these days are sailboats, um, and nothing against sailboaters, but, but we deal with more sailboats and a lot of them are in the 27 to 35 foot range. And, uh, you know, they're, they're really, really old. Some from the seventies, some, most of the shrimping fleet in the Southeast is really old too. The actual fleet vessels, they're very expensive to build uh, a new one. And uh, so most of the vessels are over 50 years old and uh, are made of wood, very hard to insure. And so sometimes a sail, um, a shrimping vessel, they they are it's typically a a, a total loss if it's a, if it's a, a big you know, incident. So so we deal with vessels that are that are you know over 50. We most newer you know nice and shiny gel coat kind of boats uh, have have adequate insurance. If something happens, it's going to be raised and taken care of. Mm -hmm. So for the ones that are that are very submerged, that's where you've had to pull out the crane. Is that's that's the way you guys get them get them out? It depends, and that's the beauty of it. Sometimes it you know sometimes they they come up easy, and, and you use a, a diver and you use uh, airbags. You know, four thousand pounds, six thousand pound lift capacity uh, airbags, and if they're anchored in the or secured in the right spot, and you know if you can get the vessel broken free of the mud, if it's got a suction on it, if you can get the gunnels above water, 
then you can start pumping out the boat and then start blasting out the mud. And so oftentimes that, that works, but sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> so then you end up when you need some extra lift uh, to, to make it happen. So in Ori County, Myrtle Beach area, we, every boat we took out was via barge and a large excavator with a, a bucket and a, a pincher thumb. And we did it that way. A lot messier, which meant Wit spent a lot of time in a small boat going around picking up debris with a net, right? Because it's a messy, you know, in the water kind of job. But that's that's the resource we had. That's how we got 23 boats out. There was one unique one on an island where the county went to get a boat that was on a barrier island. It was really not not publicly inhabited or traveled. And they took it and they cut a little road in the woods and they got a got an excavator to get this thing off the beach. And while they're doing that, they found like two cars buried out there too. So they 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 got all that chassis and stuff out of there too. So, yeah. Wow, no kidding. Well, that seems to speak very clearly to what Wounded Nature is doing. And you guys are cleaning up things that the community otherwise wouldn't have even seen. You guys are doing great work. With best of luck to you and the team, and thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and leave us a review or rating. Or you share us with your friends on social media or on the VHF. Anywhere you spread the word means a lot to us. Thanks again, and until next time, we'll see you on the water.